0: Welcome to our inaugural podcast, um, where we talk to people whose writings and ideas and thoughts may just be the thing that gets us through this weird fucking time that we are living through. Um, and so we're kicking it off with our first one with Mister. I'm going to mispronounce it. Here we go. Tomer Perisco.
1: Perisico. Ah,
0: oh, Perisico.
1: So Tomar Persko is a known commodity in Israel. He is, to use a phrase I detest, one of the most prominent public intellectuals writing about politics, identity, the lot. He actually has a really interesting relationship with religion, which we'll get into. He's a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley. And his new book, which does not yet have a title, is about the image of God. Now, This is an idea that is familiar to anybody who, unlike Vanessa, has read the book of Genesis, that... Humanity was created in God's image. But Tomer makes the argument that this little seed of an idea had world-shaping consequences. We talk about the origin and evolution of this idea, about how through Christianity it has permeated Europe and even led eventually to, ironically, atheism. We also talked about identity politics, the crisis of meaning in the West— The Cult of Authenticity, and The Crisis of the Liberal World. We we covered a lot.
0: Yes. Now, I will say, if you're like me and you were not brought up with any religion whatsoever, a Bible was never put in your hand, Old Testament or New, you might be wondering... It was, in
1: fact, snatched from your hand. (laughs) Exactly. spiraling through the window. (laughs)
0: Uh, So if you're like me, you might be wondering, what the hell is the image of God? What does that even mean? Do not fret. Tomer is excellent at breaking down this concept.
1: So let's just get into it.
0: Let's just... Listen to our first episode, our first interview with Tomer per- oh, Perisico Persego.
1: you're you're the first person that we're trying this with hence some of our our technical difficulties perhaps but <laughs> um, thank but you for
0: being our guinea pig yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly but, we, but <laughs> we have, and I, we really feel um, um, privileged to have this conversation with you and to to launch it off with you so so thank, thank you. you. So you're, make sure that I get the title right, you're the Visiting Assistant Professor of, um, of Jewish Studies
2: in Berkeley? I'm the correct Visiting Assistant Professor in the Institute for Jewish Law and Israel Study at UC Berkeley, yes. And I'm also the Shalom Hartman uh, Scholar-in-Residence in the Bay Area for these uh, two and going for three
1: years give us a podcast friendly introduction to to (laughs) what that means and what it means the kind of work that you do and um and also how your background and elements of faith play into it
2: wow okay that's that's actually a long story i mean (laughs) i mean as far as my job is concerned i'm i'm in the university i'm obviously a professor so i'm teaching courses on On Jewish Studies and Israel Studies, I teach Introduction to Jewish Mysticism, and I teach a course on Contemporary Judaism in Israel, in which I I take the advantage to to try to ask what is modern Jewish identity or identities in general, and and that's what I do there. So that's pretty standard. As the Bay Area Scholar-in-Residence for the Hartman Institute, I teach different groups in the Bay Area, and I mean, wait. and all over. I mean, uh, certainly before the coronavirus uh, struck, I was flying around also. But I teach different groups. It's groups of, of uh, entrepreneurs or businessmen or, or, or religious uh, professionals or young, uh, promising uh, Jewish talents, etc. In the Bay Area, and, and with, with the with the Hartman based Hartman. Um, Agenda, which is, uh, you know, Jewish peoplehood and liberal, liberal traditional Judaism, let's say, widely writ, let's say. Uh, so that's basically my job. Now, my own personal life and how it uh, configures into that, again, that's, uh, that's, that's quite a story. I mean, I, I was born in Haifa to a completely secular family, an atheist family. And it is only when I, when I became a young adult that I discovered uh, the Jewish tradition. It was through the not very original, actually, after the army trip to India, uh, which is you know, it's, 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 it's pretty much mandatory in Israel. After your mandatory army service, you go to the mandatory trip to the east. And, and there I discovered... Let me put it bluntly, spirituality, or even more bluntly, God. <laughs> Pardon me. And, and, uh, and, and coming back to Israel, well, I, 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 I knew I wanted to study philosophy and religion, and studying that, I, I thought it's, it's pretty absurd not actually studying my, my own tradition, and I started to do that academically and, and non-academically. So I mean I don't know how how deep you want me to go into that story, but basically that's that's how I got into Jewish studies and religious studies, and um, uh, and 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 so here I'm also uh, I'm also uh, I don't know living as a I guess traditional Jew and uh, maybe a, spirit, a religious Jew. Where did you find God? In India. In India. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. So, I mean, so coming to India as a total uh, uh, convi- con- convinced atheist, I, s- I, I told myself, okay, I'm, I'm here. I mean, I, I actually wanted to, to go to the States for and after the army trip. I wanted to go to the United States. That's, that's actually what I wanted to do. But I wonder
0: trip. what you would have found if you'd gone there.
2: And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite a different God. I, I'd be on Wall Street or something like that. But, but my army friends were all going to India. I, and I, I mean, I wanted to, to, to hang out with them. So, so I, I came with them to, to India. And I, and I told myself, as long as I'm in India, I'm going to check out all these gurus and ashrams and yoga and meditation and Buddhism and Hinduism and whatnot. And prove to myself that it's all nonsense and go back to leading a, a normal, let's say, quote unquote, life in Israel. And I did, I, I, I circled the whole of the subcontinent and I went to countless, i not countless, but dozens of ashrams and, and met all sorts of interesting teachers and, and did prove to myself that a lot of that is nonsense. A lot of that is bullshit. But some is actually real, is actually worthwhile. I mean, actually teaches you amazingly profound things about yourself and the world and your connection to the world and your relationship with the world and i thought oh my god i mean this this actually is something very deep and and that's when i started again being blunt my spiritual quest uh so to speak and 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 really if i have to point out one specific technique it would be uh, it would be Vipassana meditation, Buddhist meditation, Vipassana, which uh, I practiced uh, in different on different occasions in India. And, and right from the first course, I, I did a ten day course. I I really uh, found out. I I understood that that this is something. Uh, uh, significant that again teaches me a lot about myself. So, so that was the, the beginning of my journey.
1: So, the how does that how did that translate into Judaism? Is that is that just something your the craving for spirituality is just something that you could have
2: superimposed right. any other faith on? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I could have stayed a, a vipassana practitioner and that's it. But for a few reasons, I turned to Judaism, and I really I don't know how. I, I mean, this is turning into a religious uh, podcast. I, I hope <laughs> to play with it, but 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 I, I'll I'll say first of all, uh, simply for the for the very uh, um, um, prosaic uh, reason that I am Jewish and this is my tradition, and I can read Hebrew two thousand year old texts in the original tongue, and it simply is preposterous. I thought for me to read a translation of Greek philosophy and translation of Sanskrit spirituality and not read the actual, let's say, Talmud and, and whatnot or Kabbalah in the original time. So mm-hmm. that's that, that first. Second, I always wanted also to influence my society, to, to try to improve my society. And I understood quite early that in Israel, I, I, I excuse. I mean, excuse me for the noises. These are, of course, my kids that have been <laughs> for five months without school. Uh, so, I mean, you'll have to bear them, and believe me, I have to bear them a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was saying I wanted to influence the Israeli society, and I, I, I understood that in order to do so, you have to know how to speak Jewish. You have to mm. know to uh, to uh, to delve into your tradition into our tradition and and and, and raise uh, the resources that are there and to use them it, you can't do it just by professing liberalism which i don't uh, which is important also but it's not enough in itself. so that was also another reason to for for studying Judaism and uh and another reason is, and here again, this is a bit religious, I hope, I hope it's okay. Uh, what I found, what I, or what I felt as, or, or as my relationship with the divine um, evolved, I felt that that which I was in relationship with, with is not a void and it is not emptiness. It is some sort of fullness and goodness. And with all my immense, immense debt to the Buddhist tradition and to its practice, meditative practice that I learned, it was not in the end something, it was it, it couldn't satisfy, or it could it didn't fit into what I understood, again, as, as my relationship with the divine. And really, again, not saying that other people's relationship with whatever that is cannot be different. But for me, it was something more resembling the monotheistic um, benevolent entity than something that is selfless and void, and etc. So, so that was another, maybe more personal re- reason why why to turn uh, to Judaism, and, and that's what I did.
1: I, I want to get back to the political side of this a little later, um, sure. but what you're saying right now is actually is a good lead up to yeah, the segue. to your book um, yeah. b- because because you still ended up defaulting to Judaism. And it just made more sense to you. The language made more sense to you, the, the mental language of it, or the language of spirituality in it. So, and I feel like that's a lot what your book is about. So, um, I want to get to your book, but actually don't know if it has an official title yet.
2: Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I it doesn't have an official title. It's going to be something like The Image of God and How This Idea Changed the modern West or shape the modern West and Judaism, something like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so, so give us the elevator pitch for the book and then we're going to
2: dig in. Yeah, but I will say, I mean, this book is not a religious book and it's, it's even not about spiritual journeys. It's actually a, a history of ideas it's a, or a cultural history uh, in which I try to show how fundamental was the idea of the image of God in the evolution of what we know as our world, the modern West, uh, and 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 again, this is not even in an original, you know, thesis. Obviously, I think it's obvious to anyone to you know to anyone who studies this that that this idea was was seminal in the West's uh, evolution. But but I think I make the case in a way that hasn't been made before. And and so I don't know how I mean how, how broad you wanted to talk about the book right now, but, but I go from antiquity till modernity and show certain signposts or certain certain uh, key uh, junctions in which this idea or this principle really uh, was very uh, transformative.
0: Can we dive into that principle, this idea of the image of God? Because you say it's not terribly original for anyone who's well versed in this uh, this area of study. Um, but I am definitely not versed in this area of study, and so I had not, I hadn't really heard about this concept before. So, would you mind kind oh. of breaking it down uh, for for someone like me who maybe hasn't come across it before? What do you mean when you say the image of God?
2: Well, well you know, we have uh, verses in the few, in the, the the first chapters. Of Genesis which tell us that man was created in the image of God man w- w- including here women all, a woman also and and, and, and and there's another verse that actually spells this out male and female uh, God created them which 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 is a people which are in the image of God so so these verses are pretty straightforward now. We can ask, what does that actually mean? And indeed, our sages and and our tradition and then the Christian tradition indeed asked, what does that exactly mean? But but in a very basic term, that's simply what the Bible states. Now, the idea of people being created in divine image is not a Jewish invention or a Hebrew invention, as if we want to be more precise for the ancient... uh, tradition. It's not a Hebrew invention. It it was around in the Mesopotamian area. The Egyptians knew about it. uh, The Babylonians uh, knew about it. But the novelty uh, that the Jewish tradition introduces is making everybody in the image of God. Because let's say if, if we take the uh, the very famous uh, Babylonian epic or Mesopotamian epic, uh, uh, Gilgamesh, the, the mm-hmm. legend of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh was created in the image of God. He was created in the image of the God Anu, the God of the sky. But it was only him that was created in the image of God, and and obviously that's why he was king and he was a hero and he defeated many monsters and whatever, right? What, what the Jewish tradition does, what whoever what what, wrote Genesis does, uh, is is designate everybody all people as being made in the image of God, and here and then we can ask what does that exactly mean, etc. But the first, the very first thing that we must understand is this is a very universal trait uh, and makes and and really, if for the, for Babylonia uh, or or Syria the the legend of or, or the mythology revolves around a certain person made in the image of God, we now need to understand that the Hebrew mythology will revolve around all people, around humanity. And so, indeed, we have the Tower of Babel, and we have Noah and his family in the whole of humanity. That's the story. That's what happens. That's who we are following in our divine narrative, of adventure right not some hero gilgamesh specifically but the whole of humanity and then out of humanity you've got this certain nation that has a covenant with the divine etc etc we know the story right mm-hmm.
1: in to to oversimplify it the story that you're telling is how this idea that in, textually at least has can, is traced back to the to the hebrew bible yeah. has instilled in the culture that ju- then became Judeo-Christian culture, this idea of u- the universality of human dignity. Is that
2: correct? I mean, yeah, that's, 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 yeah, it's correct. But the question is how? I mean, again, the, the question that we must ask is, what does that mean? Okay. It was, I mean, obviously people are important if they were created in the image of God. It, it lends some sort of significance to each and every person, but how and, and what does that mean? And so now we, and if we go to the Bible or we go to, to, um, to the sages of the time, actually, and you might be surprised to, uh, to know this, that actually for them, the image of God simply means the physical contours of the divine body. So for the Bible and for the Talmudic sages, people resemble the divine physically. And, and I know this sounds totally maybe ludicrous to us today, but that's actually, I mean, and you can bring any number of, of evidence for this in the writings of the sages, and let's, I'll, I'll give you one. Uh, when the sages discuss why is it halachically uh, um, um, decreed, that you must take down a hand. That personnel. is, that
1: is just to translate to the to the non-Jews among us. That means, ah, why is it decreed by the glad. law of the of the of the Torah? Is yeah, right. ah, actually,
2: I didn't know there were no jews yeah,
0: Okay, it's it's <laughs> nest- <laughs> <laughs> one present and hopefully a couple ah, okay. of listening.
2: Hello. <laughs> Hello everybody. Hello everybody. Nice to, right, <laughs> nice to speak to you also. Yeah. So. So uh, so obviously, uh, okay, so we're talking about the divine law, the halachah, it's the, it's the law that um, traditionally the, the Jews kept. And one of, the, one of the clauses there is that when you execute a person by hanging, you must take them down after one day. You, you can't leave the body hang there. And we know that in, ancient, in the ancient world, people were left hanging all the time. I mean... I mean uh, I mean, even 200 years ago, people in cages and people on spikes and whatever we know, right? And, and halachically, that's not that's not allowed. And the sages, you know, they try to explain why is it not allowed. And, and one way of them explaining it is that it's through a parable of two brothers, twins. One is the king, and one is his twin, and and that twin, the, the not the non king one, where you know committed some crime, and he's hanged, and now, you know, if people see this person hanged, they will think that the king is hanged, right? They will think actually that the, 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 their king is dead. And that can't be. And so we need to take that person down after he is hanged. And the analogy is, of course, humans and the divine. If, if we see uh, a, a man hanged, we are seeing as if God hanged. And that, of course, is is something that we can't allow, so we need to take this person down, etc. So, and this is, again, just one piece of evidence for how they thought that the actual contours of the body resemble the divine.
0: So in that case, hanging the person isn't the desecration, it's the visual aspect of, of everyone seeing the dead body.
2: Yeah, that's, and that's bad because it's, it's as if you're seeing God. There, hmm. right? Hang, right? And I, I, you know, of course, we immediately think about Christianity, which actually right. seeds on, uh, and of course, but uh, let's not get into that. But <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite possible that they are also polemicizing against their Christian, you know, brothers, rivals that are now becoming the uh, the quickly ascending, uh, dominating religion. But, but anyway, but but that's again just one piece of evidence. So. So the sages of the Talmud thought that each and every human was very, very important. And each and every one was important because we all resemble the divine. Now, what they also would say uh, is that even though we we are, we, we are we resemble the divine, our faces are different. And that's, the, that's something special or something... Um, idiosyncratic, for the divine figure that the face is all, always different. So, each and every person has a different face, but still, we all resemble the divine.
1: It's almost like the, the Game of Thrones god of the god of uh, hmm, million the, many faces, faces. the many-faced god, yeah. Oh. Uh,
2: yeah it's, I mean, it's, I, didn't, I didn't see the series unfortunately, but yeah. So, in this idea, we already
1: have the concept of universal humanity, but also the grain of
2: individualism. Right, exactly. And that's very important. It's not only that everybody is important, but it's that each and every person is important in and of themselves. Mm. And, and, and the sages say this explicitly. They are themselves important. And, then we, and, and now, how do we know that they are all important? This already plays out in the biblical and then halachic uh, uh, post-biblical laws of Judaism. Let's give examples. One example is that, uh, and, and this is already in the chapter 5 uh, of, uh, uh, of, of uh, Genesis, right? And, and just a minute, let me... Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's uh, chapter 9. Uh, in Hebrew, whoever spills the blood of man, man will spill his blood because man was created in divine image. Hmm. So, this is a pretty straightforward law that says if you kill someone, you will be killed. And, right? that, con-
1: and that concept is a departure from the Near East in terms exactly. of. Exactly.
2: And this is what we need to understand that it's not only that you will be punished severely for killing a person because each and every person was made in the image of God, it's that you will be punished and not someone else will be punished. Now, you may think, well, obviously, the killer will be punished. But in the Near East, in the whole Mesopotamian area, it was quite the custom that if, 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 if someone killed somebody, first of all, you may give money instead of being killed. I mean, you, you, can, you can pay a fine, right? And sort of fine yourself out of execution. But even more than that, it's not that every person was... Um, W- w- was given enough subjectivity, enough accountability to even be able to be punished. And I'll, I'll give an example, uh, or oh, I'll, I'll give will give an example from uh, from uh, um, um, a Babylonian law. It's from the laws of Hammurabi, right? Hammurabi, a uh, uh, Babylonian king from the uh, 18th century uh, BCE. And and, the, and this is just again one law out of many that says if you're a builder of the house of a house and, and and out of an accident, let's say your hammer falls, you're building the roof, the hammer falls and kills the son of the owner of the house right you're building a house for someone else, uh, your son will be killed you killed someone's son, your son will be killed. Why is that? Why are you not killed you're not killed because Neither son is considered a fully developed legal subject. Neither son is an individual, really, in, 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 in what, how, how we would think about it. And so a person's son, or a person here meaning a man that is uh, the head of a family, a pattern familias, the patriarch, right? A, a patriarch's son or wife or sheep or cattle or whatever or, or slaves, are part of his own individuality or really of his own um, um, extended body and agency and accountability, right? So they're not people in and of themselves. So if I kill someone's son, in the logic of an eye for an eye, a hand for a hand, etc., if I kill someone's son, my son is killed. I, I am punished by way of having my son dead. But obviously, my son is not connected at all to that accident in which I killed someone, right? Now, the Bible changes that. The Bible changes that. The Bible says, if you spill someone blood, someone's blood, you will be killed. Because in the image of God, God created man, right? So it's, it's, it's really the beginning of individuality, the beginning of accountability, the beginning of seeing of ev- each and every person as uh, a, a, um, a legal subject, as a, as, a, as an individual legal subject, something that again today we take for totally granted, but it was it was very much uh, you know it was a, a novelty at the time.
1: It's something that that made me think a lot of how this, in retrospect and lo- looking back, is a very successful evolutionary strategy for. Uh, Small nation, nation in diaspora. If you put so much emphasis on the the sanctity of the individual of the body, then you know that developed obviously the rules of hygiene and and preservation, and that that allowed Jews kind of to to survive those two thousand years of diaspora.
2: Yeah, I mean. Yeah, uh, certainly it puts emphasis on the body. It puts emphasis on this world. You're not waiting to go over to the next world and so you can neglect your physical, emotional, psychological being in this world. You have to take care of what's here and now because you yourself, it's not, it's not your soul, it's your body that is most important. Of course, moving into... Uh, defining the soul or some inner entity as the image of God, which is what Christianity did, gives us other advantages and gives us other uh, ways in which our, our story really progresses. Right. Right.
1: So now let's so let's jump forward. So what does Christianity do? What does Paul do to evolve this idea of the image of God?
2: Okay. So so really, what we we're, we're, we're talking here about uh, Saint Paul, Paul the Apostle which is a, f- a figure that, I mean, you cannot exa- exaggerate the importance of this single individual. I-, I think in any list of the three most important people ever, Paul the Apostle is in. I mean, it's, it's, hmm. it's, I have no doubt. And what Paul does, I mean, this, I, I, and, and, you know, I don't know, for, let's, now let's, talk, let's, let's introduce Paul to the, to the Jewish uh, listeners. Uh, we're talking about a, a first century a Jew from Tarsus, from uh, what is today, then Isaiah Minor, uh, today Turkey, uh, who was a zealot uh, against the Christians and, and hunted Christians down. We're talking about the first century, so it's really just small groups of uh, new believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And, and then he, he has a turn of heart, he, he's born again, he has a conversion experience in which he hears Christ calling him to join him, and he does, and, and suddenly he's a Christian, okay? Now, being a Christian, uh, he needs, he, 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 he doesn't, he's not satisfied with just laying back and believing, he takes it upon himself to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to bring the good word to basically the entire Mediterranean. And he he goes on four different uh, expeditions, you know, around the Mediterranean Sea, Italy, Cyprus, uh, um, uh, um, Greece, etc. I mean, the whole whole Mediterranean, it's really impressive. I mean, the the energy and the... uh, uh, and the creativity of this person, because, because he not only went and, and spoke, he also basically created Christianity as we know it today. He, he laid down the theological framework of what is today Christianity, because Jesus, uh, you know, he talked, uh, he, he had a lot of nice parables, but not a lot of principles by which now we are going to build the church and an institution, and, 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 and communities, and, and a society, right? And Paul gradually does that. Okay, now what does Paul do with the image of God? Paul, basically what he, what he does with everything is internalize the image of God. The image of God for Paul is no longer the actual physical contour, the physical frame of the human body. It is something internal. It is connected to him, to that transformation, to that transformative conversion experience. He, he, he uses the word metamorphosis a few times in his letters to the different communities of Christians. And, uh, and so when we uh, approach Christ, when we take on Christ, when we believe, when we are converted, we, have, we are redeemed, of course, of original sin. And our image of God is redeemed of of the of whatever stain was uh, uh, it, it, um, it caught when Adam and Eve uh, sinned in the garden of Eden and and here is what imp- it's imp- what's important for us because when the image of God gets internalized that means uh, it's, it, it has enormous significance for for, for history for western history because that means that the body becomes less important, the psyche or or the mental facilities or the emotional facilities or the or, or the soul what what Paul would designate it becomes more important. And that Opens the gate to an understanding that really, I'm, I'm using quote marks here. That like actually, that deeply, profoundly, that in the most essential way, all people are the same. Okay. Now this idea is already potentially there in the image of God, but Paul works it out and articulates it. And and uh, there, there are a few verses in which he actually says this. And you know, let me quote one. Uh, which I hadn't prepared before in English. So allow me to...
0: <laughs> Translate on the fly.
2: Uh, no, no, I'll, 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 um, I'll get into the Bible game. Please,
1: in the, in the original Greek only. <laughs>
2: and, and we have this translation. is the new international version. You want the King James? Always. Yeah, let's go.
1: That's partially why I'm called James, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> really? Seriously or not?
2: So, No, seriously. Yeah. Okay, there we go. It starts in verse 26, Galatians, uh, Galatians uh, 3, and, and, and Paul says, right, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, right? This is this we know. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ, you put on Christ. This is this is Paul's expression, doesn't matter. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is ne- nor there is male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And this, you know, I, again, I can't exaggerate the importance and that, that the, the revolutionary nature of this verse. Because what does Paul tell us here? It, it, he tells us, the minute you are in relationship with Christ, and it doesn't matter exactly what does he mean by that, but, but the minute you are, you are part of a universal uh, community. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. He even, he even annihilates or nullifies the, the basic distinction between male and female. Imagine that. This is the first century CE, right? This is amazing, and and why does he do that? This internalization of everything and this placing of the uh, center of weight of importance inside allows him to make all people all over the world Abraham's seed, right? And I quote: "If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise." We would think Abraham's seed, seed is, is, of course, you know. Genetically connected, right? You would think that that is only people who genetically came from Abraham, which is the Jewish people. And of course, since Abraham also begetted Ismail, it's also the Muslims. But, but these are the people that came from Abraham. Paul says, no, what's important here is not your bodily, physical, genetic connection to some ancient ancestors, ancestor. it is actually your spiritual connection. To the divine through Christ, and so everybody is now entering everybody's heirs to the promise, right? Entering into the covenant, and and, may, and the whole of humanity is God's chosen people now. And this is, of course, the great revolution. I mean, this is this is what Paul does. This is Christianity, right? This is Christianity saying to to the, to, to Judaism, it's it's all well and well and nice. You were you were. You were great, uh, you know, it was, you, you had a good, a good run, but now the covenant is being opened up and everybody's invited, right? And, and so we have universal Christianity. We have the Catholic, i.e. universal church.
1: So I, I think that it's, it's worth dwelling just a second more, longer on this idea, not just through Paul, but through the history of Christianity, just how big this revolution is um, not just a, uh, in addition to the universalization of it, the idea that religion or that faith is something that happens internally, that is a matter of faith yeah. yes. is is a novel idea and it's very difficult, I think, to even con- realize that the idea that we have today of religion is, as something that every person has their own um, set of beliefs and that's fine that is to a degree, a Christian concept of religion.
2: Yes. And this is also something that came from Paul. Because until Paul showed up, it's not only the Jews, the Romans and the Greeks had their, you know, their uh, worshipful traditions. I mean, I don't don't want to use the word religion too much, but they had certain ways in which to worship the divine. They had Mm traditions. Now, those traditions met in express themselves manifested themselves as rituals. you would be committed and prescribed and, 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 and forced to do certain rituals every day or every week or every year whatever the timeline was. so, so if you were, a, you, you were a Roman citizen you would be demanded to come to the city square and participate in what we would call today religious rituals but w- which were First of all, communal um, orchestrated events in which you, 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 um, you admitted or maybe I, I need another word, you, you verified sort of your place in society. You were a Roman citizen of a certain city worshipping the city's divine agent, whatever, the city's deity. Uh, and you would do that ritual. And that's what... It, now, whatever you felt about it meant nothing. Mm. It just isn't, didn't matter at all if you were happy about it or not, if you connected or not, if, if, uh, if you're know if, if you mad about it. It doesn't matter. It's not that... It's, it doesn't matter, not in the way that you're anyway forced to do it. Of course, you're anyway forced to do it. It doesn't matter in a religious way. It doesn't matter... For this religion to be effective, or to be valid and to be authentic in everybody's eyes, people didn't need to be inwardly persuaded for in order to be religious. No, and know, it's exactly the same way in Judaism. It's not that you know a, a, a traditional Jew gets up in the morning, he he prays and and, and puts in, He puts them. There's these. Um, how do you say that in English? Uh, James, uh, Adam.
1: Oh, I, so I have no idea.
2: Okay. <laughs> so th- there's this, you know, prayer props. That's, that's I, mean, without, props prayer. I, don't, I don't want to sound... I mean, I, I use them every morning. So it's not... I, I, I highly respect them. So, but, <laughs> but, but you use these things and you pray out of a book and you read whatever you, you, you need to read for the morning prayer and whether you, you're, you're, you feel good about it or bad, or you, you, you're motivated or not, or you're exalted or you're depressed, it matters nothing. It just doesn't matter at all for this prayer to be valid. Not for, you know, for, for in the eyes of the sages, for God to be very happy about it. It's okay. You don't need to like it. It's okay. It's a valid, authentic prayer. And this was the way people understood religion or understood worship. Worship is a technical, orchestrated, ritualistic, um, uh, uh, practice. And and of course, you know, and, and I mean, basically, the for 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 traditional for many traditional, certainly Orthodox Jews, it's 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 that way till today. Now, there were changes, of course, and Hasidism uh, gave us a few different uh, emphasized uh, emphasize different things, but that's generally the, the way it is.
1: And then Paul turns it over and said,
2: right, and Paul says, wait a minute, what's, as the, in the same way that not our body is important, but our soul, our inner psyche, etc., et what's important about religion, what's important about our connection to the divine is not Going through the motions in a certain ritualistic fashion, but it's meaning, it's uh, emotion, it's I, an inner transformation, as we said before, it's an inner rebirth of being born again. It's all these inner processes that, ha- that now take, uh, take more importance. Now, it's not that there weren't any rituals, obviously, there were. I mean, these people are still. Two thousand years ago. But you can see along the history of Christianity how rituals get shaved off as we proceed. And of course, the Protestant Revolution, you know, makes this, it's, its agenda, its very purpose is to say, you know, the sacraments, no, that's actually not true. And the whole monk-nun system is actually, you know, it's bogus, you can let that go. And what we need is only to uh, be in, in internal uh, 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 sola fide, right? It's, it's just faith, just faith. That's all you need, uh, as Martin Luther would say. And, and 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 you can take it to an extreme with uh, with what I mean in, in in extreme Protestant sects, like let's say the Quakers or the, or the Shakers, right? And and I don't know. Do you, do you know how Shakers? Uh, and, and Quakers pray.
0: I've heard of Quaker prayer circles. Uh, so prayer where, circles, right. So what do they yeah. do? I believe they kind of um, will be in a room together and they'll just be silent until they're moved and then they, they will speak when they're moved. Exactly. Is that right? Exactly.
2: Exactly. So we have here the extreme version of a non-orchestrated prayer, of a non-ritual, of a prayer that you don't even use a book. You, and it's, it's like and you, there's no, you know, preordained or prearranged sequence. It's nothing. It's just you're in the room and whenever the Holy Spirit descends, you say whatever the Holy Spirit's you know, inspires you to say. I mean, I want us to understand that this is the other extreme of getting up in the morning and praying from a book. And going through some motions, whether you are inspired or completely dispirited uh, about it, right? This, this is the other end. And this is what comes out of the Christian tradition 1,500 years or, or uh, 1,800 years later.
0: Yeah, I'm cognizant that I know that we, we definitely want us to move into present day and connect to this. But I think before we can get there, I do think we do need to kind of move on from reformation now to enlightenment and, and, and right. then eventually secularism. So w- would you mind talking about how the concept of the image of God kind of transforms or evolves through, through that timeline?
2: Right. Okay. So, so the concept of the image of God, you know, has a lot of... Uh, I mean, it, it pops up here and there along the Middle Ages. It's, uh, I'll just say... Uh, for the fathers of the church, it's also important to free slaves because of the image of God, because the image of God, it's, it's preposterous for anyone to own the image of God, right? Mm. So like St. Augustine, St. Gregory of Nyssa would, would, you know, would cry out for abolition, and, and here we're talking about uh, um, white slavery, I mean, in the literal sense, not in the current sense, right? We're not mm. talking about, I mean, this, these are Europeans enslaving Europeans, right? So it's so it's this, and then it goes and is it has, a, has a has a has a duty or has, is part of the a process of articulating what we today would call human rights, and then we would call them natural rights, because because for Christians in the twelfth and certain centuries, the capacity of reason and the capacity of free will were parts. Of the image of God, there was the understanding that we cannot we cannot suppress them. We cannot we or we shouldn't.
1: That's because if it's all about faith, then without free will, faith is meaningless. Right.
2: I mean, I mean, if we want someone to truly, truly be saved, truly believe, truly be in, in, in relationship with the divine, how can we construct or constrict uh, their conscience? Right they need to be free to worship as they want, or else it's not valid religion, it's not authentic religion. Again, the opposite of, of other, uh, of more ancient traditions. And it's this string of individualism and of growing internalization that, that then gets into, I mean, it, it, it manifests itself also in the English civil wars, in cries out of Puritans and levelers and and different Protestant radicals there to, again, to let people worship as they want. They called it freedom of conscience, right? We need to be free to worship as we want. These same Puritans, of course, will hop on the Mayflower and other ships and get into New England and, and eventually be a part of the founding of the United States, and so we have all that ethos here in the States. And, but if, but, but when we're, when we want to talk about secularism, I will go back to my, um, to my example with the Quakers, right? The Quakers, perhaps took the idea that only the inner counts and what, and only the, the, the inner religion or the inner worship is really important to to its most extreme while still maintaining their Christianity because the Quakers still believe in Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. But the next logical step is simply saying, well, you know, if whatever is important is our own emotional and and, uh, conscientious and uh, psychological state and our authenticity to worship, whatever that is, why do we actually need this middleman this this christ figure right and actually you know it's not only that because if we really if we if if really what's important is only our inner convictions why do we actually need god and here we can have the on on the on what for the first step we can have all sorts of new age Spiritual, contemporary spiritual religions, that's basically Christianity without Christ, right? Saying, you know, everybody should go his own way and whatever you do, it's the, you know, just be true to yourself and, and, you know, express your love for the divine or truth with a couple of tea or, or, or the one or whatever. And that's all that's important, right? That's, that's that. And then, and, and, and the next step is atheism. Saying, you know, the, the only important thing, really, is for you to be a good person and to be true to yourself, not to some divine, however way you want to, but actually to yourself and just be an authentic person, right? And mm-hmm. that's secularism, atheism, existentialism, and that's, that's basically the 19th century and, the, and, 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 uh, and most of the 20th century.
1: One element of the story that I really enjoyed um, in the way you laid it out in your book is the the more emphasis the culture put on personal will and personal faith, the more it had an urgency of separating church and state and because you can't couldn't have any um, mm-hmm any secular power deciding for you what to do or what to believe because that would actually that would contradict the whole purpose of right. that religion but that that idea moved up so far it got with constant revolutions uh, from luther through the enlightenment um till today of constantly people saying well Actually, this thing is infringing on my religion. First, of all, it was the Catholic Church, and now it's also Protestantism, and 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 maybe Christianity itself that is infringing on our freedom to to really be ourselves, which is in the Enlightenment version, be true to reason and to, right. uh, to the true to the truth. And then even the idea of God becomes a sort of tyranny over the right. mind
2: that needs to be banished. Right. Right. So in the end, I mean, and this is also I mean, relating to morality. I mean, the, the question here is. How do I know what's good or bad? How do I know how to act in a justified, in a righteous way? And for people 200 years ago and back, it, the, the obvious reason was, when, you know, God God told us. God told us what's good and bad, and it's written in the Bible or in the interpreters of the Bible. Um, and, and we can just look it up and, and know. But... Uh... And, and, and for these people, we need to understand. For these people, the thought of understanding, of knowing what's good and bad, without the divine guidance, was preposterous. Was ludicrous. You can't. How, how would you? How would you know? You just can't know. I mean, and it's it's a good thing. That's why God gave us God gave us the Bible and the prophets and Jesus, whatever, for us to for for us to be able to form a society which is based on good or even a society at all, because otherwise we would all simply kill each other all day. <laughs> and, and what happens in the Enlightenment is that the idea of an inner source of, of morality becomes or, or is introduced. And suddenly people in different ways think that a person can out of, out of themselves understand what's good or bad. Either by the use of reason, and and you know Kant would be uh, you know the, the archetype here. You know, just think, think. If everybody would do whatever you want to do, would it be logically possible and conducive and and and, and a good thing? And then you know, you know if it's good or bad. Uh, and so it's either reason or a a, a connection to an a, to the to the uh, well uh, then. Uh, or to a sort of a natural elan a sort of natural um, spirit uh, spirit is a bad word it's it's, a, it's an energy that's inside you if you connect to your naturalness to your nature to your inner authentic to your authenticity core, your your inner authentic core yes you will know what's good or bad you don't need any education and you don't reason is just is just an invention just you know look into your heart Look into your heart and you will know what's good or bad, right? And this is a modern idea. We now take it for granted, it's obvious, but it's a modern idea that this is even possible, conceivable, right? And people start doing it. They either think reasonably what's good or bad, or they delve deep, and this is, I mean, and here you have the two, the two arms of the Enlightenment, the, 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 the Enlightenment per se, and the Romanticism, which is, sometimes considered the anti enlightenment, but it's still a modern uh, movement that that says each and every person can tap into something inside themselves and uh, and know what's good or bad. And then, as you said, Adam, what happens is that as people in the West are um, defensive or are anxious about government, or kings, or whatever, infringing on their freedoms, they become also anxious about the divine infringing about their, in, in their freedoms. Not only because they want to be autonomous and free, right, uh, quote-unquote. Because, because if, if I want to act in a moral way, the only way I can do it is if I am completely free. If the divine instructs me, or promises me heaven, or scares me with hell, if I do good or bad, that's not really morality, is it? Kant would say, right? I mean, if I do something just out of fear of reprie, reprie- how do you say? Repercussion. Repercussions or reprimandation, I think. Uh, then, then, then it's not really, I'm not doing an, a moral act. So in order to, be, to, to act morally, I now need God to disappear. I now need to reject the idea of God because only if I'm totally autonomous can I act in a moral way. And here, and and this is this is articulated beautifully by Charles Taylor. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm 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 indebted i indebted uh, enormously to to Taylor, the Canadian philosopher uh, who wrote about these things in, in a few books. So so I'm not it's not my invention or, or discovery or anything, but. Um, I mean, I just show what the place of the image of God is in this process. But 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 and and or, or and if we are talking about the image of God here, the image of God, the idea of the image of God, as it were, is flipped on its head because we are now we or, or the image of God becomes the image of man, or in another way to put it, our inner a capacity to be reasonable and to have free will is now disconnected from the divine. We don't want a divine. And now now becomes simply a natural human capacity. And it is with that capacity that we can now engage in constructing, establishing the whole new human society which the Enlightenment set out to do.
1: And the end result of it is... Defending a President of the United States for his behavior by saying that he
2: is true
1: to his authentic self
2: right yeah and and here the, and you're you're pointing at the the negative i mean the downside of authenticity the whole culture of authenticity again Charles Taylor wrote a whole book about it the ethics of authenticity authenticity is a great thing but uh, but the, it has it has a few you know it, it can too much of it, or let's say, it can it, it it can become um, it can become sort of corrupted if you take it too seriously, let's say. I mean, or 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 you know, if you don't if you don't understand its dynamics, because people today seem to think that anything I anything I choose to do is considered authentic. Actually, it doesn't work that way. But but it. it, it whatever I do always has a context. And and it's not that if I order a Big Mac, I can proclaim that it's my authentic self uh, manifesting itself, right? Nobody will take me seriously if I do that. Certain things are considered authentic and certain things are not. But what authenticity also allows is, I mean, uh, and if we take the example of Trump, what Trump displays is a certain kind of authenticity. It is the authenticity of having no, no buffer between his internal and external uh, manifestations or, uh, or expressions, right? Whatever he thinks, he says. There's no buffer, right? And, and this is considered in our culture a supremely authentic act, a supremely authentic deed. This person says what he thinks, or I mean, this person just blurts it out, and he's very blunt, and he's very direct, and he doesn't mince words, and he says it as it is, etc. And paradoxically, and this is the interesting thing here, Trump can be authentic while lying. Mm. Okay? So he, does, he doesn't have to be truthful in order to be conceived by his uh, followers, I wanted to say, by his voters, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> as, as, as authentic, and that's what happens, right? And, and, and we value authenticity today so much that to be considered authentic is much more important than to be considered truthful. Right.
1: Because he, because he is committed to a truth. It's just, it's his truth. It's not... Uh, it's not a
2: truth. I would say he's committed to himself and his, in, 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 you know, his own well-being and, I don't know, power and glory and whatever. That's what he's committed to. And, and he does this in a very direct and blunt way. And this is conceived as authentic. And people are drawn to that, drawn to that sort of charisma that is the authentic person just doing their thing
0: i feel like that's why it's uh, so much harder for female politicians to to often win i feel like most times for some reason when it's a female politician there's like the sense that they're not they're not their authentic self they're putting this on i can't trust her et cetera et cetera yeah,
2: i think female politicians will anyway be much more calculated and much more apprehensive of what they say and how they sound and you know how they uh, are, are, are how their image is built, and anyway, will then be perceived as more calculated and so less right. authentic. And by the way, here again, we can see the the, the dichotomy that we talked about—the dichotomy between ritualistic, mechanical behavior and and inner expression. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the same a uh, binary, you know, duo um, playing itself out. And today being living in a christian world being basically we're all protestants right i mean let's i mean psychologically that's what we are <laughs> and being and living and, and and as as normally or not as protestants we we are drawn to that authenticity and we and we reject ritual i mean that's our basic that's the culture we live in it's a culture that rejects ritual rejects law and praises Authenticity, feeling, uh, expression, etc.
0: So, is is that it, it, un- recognizing that context of where we are now? Is that part of the reason that you were compelled to write this book at this moment in time?
2: Wow! Well, thanks for this question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, yes. I and and here, my non-Protestant self, uh, whatever left of it. I mean, I, I mean being being studying the Jewish tradition being a jew and and understanding at least that's my opinion that that ritual tradition um, external manners customs these or these things are important and and not not even saying they're the most important but but they are important for every human society. And indeed, a human society cannot function properly without ritual and without customs and without manners and without uh, and, you know relying only on authenticity. It's just not possible. It will break apart. It will fragment into individuals doing their thing. But, but there will be no society to speak of. And understanding this, yes, it's, it also... Um, and pushed me to write a book about about how we got to this place, and maybe you know, point a few, um, a few, a few flaws in what we perceive as the obvious uh, reality today.
1: So, as somebody who I, I guess has a very strong Lutheranian streak, I I, I get the irritants just hearing words like. Tradition, or right. we need we need to br- get more rituals and more customs. Uh, society is lacking that. Or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's one of the core mental, spiritual things that society is missing right now. I need I need to be convinced of that. I need to be convinced that bringing back some, or not necessarily bringing back, but having a set of customs, having something that is this unifying thing, will not turn into. A new form of cultural oppression I hear you I hear you. I
2: mean personally I'm an advocate and I'm, a, I'm an activist for freedom of religion in Israel Israel doesn't have as much freedom of religion as the United states certainly and and, and some would say it's it's lacking freedom of religion and and so uh, this is this is something that i'm thinking about myself. this is a concern that I have myself and cert- and, 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 and so I want to also correct what you say i'm'm not, I'm not you know i'm not Uh, suggesting we introduce rituals into our lives or we introduce more laws into our lives. It's not the thing at all, and it it won't even work if everybody agrees. Rituals are are not something that, you know, can be forced upon people. But, I mean, two things. First, what I want to achieve is, uh, or one of the things I want to achieve is for people, first of all, to understand that ritual has its place. And that our innate sort of, speak, so to speak, a rejection of ritual, our aller- allergic reaction to any mentioning of ritual, custom, tradition, is a certain cultural stance that we have inherited from our Protestant forefathers, so to speak. Right? It's it's one way of understanding human society and human culture but it's certainly not a universal uh, eternal way of understanding and to understand that it has its drawbacks it has its flaws and if we understand that we will then understand a new ritual and the importance of ritual so that's 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 that first of all is my um, objective secondly Obviously, we will always have to strike some sort of balance. I mean, I mean, too much ritual is also—it's not only, you know, it's 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 not only uh, constraining and and, uh, and basically w- would snuff the life out of us. It's something that we simply can't can't agree to today. I mean, I, I I I like to give a simple example. I mean, and this is an example I give to to Orthodox Jews I talk to which do want to, let's simply introduce some more rituals or let's introduce the halakha, the Jewish law, or, or let's force it upon people and it's, it will work. It will, you know, <laughs> people, or people will actually be convinced that it's good for them the minute they have a few months of forced uh, you know, uh, r- ritual. And, and I say, this is like suggesting to people that they will be happy today with arranged marriages, okay? And, and if you think about it until 100, 200 years ago, tops, we would all get married by fixed marriage, by arranged marriage, right? That's the way people did that. And, and again, this is something that is traditional. It's a custom, and it's something that had, uh, you know, it, 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 it did not... The condition was not that you fall in love. The condition was not that you uh, loved the other, your spouse, your future spouse, but that you, you know, that you got along, right? And it's something that we today see as a, basically as a monstrosity. It's something that we can't uh, even, um, you know, even start to comprehend, and certainly not go back to. So saying to people today. Throw out your authentic ethics and your uh, spiritual-minded religion, and etc., and embrace ritualistic, mechanical uh, traditions. Is the same as saying to them, you know, give up your dreams about falling in love and finding the exact person that you are in, so your soulmate or you're, you're having some inner connection to, and simply, you know, I'll find you a good. A good, a good husband or a good wife, that's, that should be enough for you. The, and, and people obviously won't accept this, not in a million years, right? It's just, just, just a, it's, a, it's a non-starter. So there's no going back in a simple way. There's no, you know, we're not going to be Talmudic sages again, and, and most people are not, are not going to be Orthodox Jews, and even Orthodox Jews are today um, managing. And um, I don't want to say manipulating because it's a it's a negative word, but they they they, they have ways to make the halachic system, the Jewish law, work inside or with our natural inclination towards spirituality and authenticity. It's not. It's we're not two thousand years ago. We are today. So so in that way, simply going back won't work. It will never work. But again, what I want to do is for people to understand that what they are today is limited in a few ways. It's limiting them, and it's limiting society. Not in all ways. It's good, but in, a cer- in a certain ways, and that, and that a new appreciation of ritual, of tradition, of custom, of, of something that is not measured only by its authenticity can be beneficial to them and to society.
1: I, I think putting putting aside the extreme example of Trump, what uh, c- can you can you kind of elaborate what do you mean by what, what we lose by having so much emphasis on on
2: individuality? I mean, well, it's easy, you know I mean and, and it, you don't need me for that because I mean, you know, conservative pundits or what have been saying this for the last fifty years. Basically fragmentation, right? It's a culture of self- fulfillment. That has disregard for 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 society. It's 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 breaking down very important societal structures that and, and that are important for the continuing prosperity of of our own society. So uh, I mean, you know, I don't want to to get into examples because it will make me seem too neocon or or you know, but. But, uh, but, but we all understand that a society that is only made up of individuals that has no common ethos and common objective and a common solidarity cannot work. And solidarity does not come simply by respecting the other, whomever they are. That doesn't work. I mean, it's a good idea, but in actuality, it doesn't play out. Uh, we need some sort of common ethos. We need some sort of um, common uh, 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 vision that we all aspire to. Um, and and you know, each each nation or each ethnic group does this differently. But but we can't we can't actually forego that completely.
0: And then in in your book and what you're arguing, are you then arguing that that the thing that could be the basis of that common ethos is a common definition of the image of God.
2: Um, no, I'm not. And th- this book is more descriptive than prescriptive. Perspic- it's it's really just understanding the journey that we've made till today and how that journey defines us and defines our society. And you know, in in the in the end word, I will maybe say that. We also you know we need to think how we progress from here but but this I mean i mean the the a whole roadmap of how to do that will maybe be a subject for another book
0: <laughs> <laughs> so then. To just trying to understand, then, do you have ah, uh, what 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 could that common ethos look like, or is there a moment in history or a time period where you would turn to and say that was a time when society had some sort of common ethos that was more
2: successful? Oh, it's, easy. it's easy. Let's take the United States in the fifties and the sixties. There was a very strong ethos of, on the one hand, the Constitution, you know, the United States uh, civil uh, religion. Uh, uh, civic religion—it's the Constitution, it's the rights, it's uh, the federal government, it's our, our here the the, the Americans, our struggle against the quote-unquote evil empire of the Bolsheviks of the Soviets. It's all these things that coalesced around them—a nation that obviously had a lot of drawbacks and, and you know, disenfranchisement uh, uh, of, of people here of course, rather, women uh, and and minorities, etc., but there was some sort of common ethos which led this nation forward. Now, today, this common ethos has broken down, I won't say completely, but in a very significant way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and here, you, you might argue, well, that's good, because now uh, we have a more egalitarian or equitist society, and I would say the more egalitarian and equitist society is actually a continuation of that ethos, and not a result of the breaking down of that ethos. But that's that's an argument we can have. But but in any way, I would say an ethos is needed.
1: You you mentioned at the beginning, but you are in Israel in terms of your political um, activism or your political writing in Israel. You are very much. On the left, you are a strong defender of whatever, whatever remains <laughs> of the Israeli left yeah. and an, incre- an incredibly strong voice against religious coercion in Israel. Right. But here, and you've just published an article regarding the American left. And your your position about it is is a little bit different. Spe- specifically, the um, American left that espouses um, this generic term identity politics. But this is something that you do have a strong criticism of here. Yeah, but it's, it's um, also in
2: Israel. It's also in Israeli, uh, you know, fad. I mean, and, and here it's also connected to whatever we said. Identity politics is also a manifestation of that inwardness, of that accentuation of whatever. Uh, whatever I feel, whatever I feel that I am, etc. Now, I'm not rejecting all identity politics. I think identity politics in in its classical form, meaning the struggle for a certain group's inclusion in equality before the law and rights and and, and protections of rights, etc., is important. And, And, you know, the civil struggle for Or the civil struggles in the sixties for women, for blacks, etc., was certainly very important. I'm talking about a certain development of identity politics. Uh, You know, you can, and then in the article I call it identitarianism, which sees, which which does not wish to uh, share or to get an equal share in the uh, the national cake. But to reject the whole cake, or basically to say, this whole structure, this whole liberal uh, structure, which today is is the common sense uh, public sphere, is in fact a hegemonic, patriarchic, Western, uh, white or Christian invention, and we reject it thoroughly in the name of freedom and equality which are actually the, the very um, uh, values or, uh, that, it, that it itself uh, espouses. But we reject it and we want our own way of doing things, etc. I think this sort of identity politics, this sort of um, isolationist identity politics is, is first of all, very much invested in the inner worlds of feelings and reactions and experiences, and that's how we get microaggressions and uh, uh, you know trigger warnings, etc. And and I think it's 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 eroding whatever uh, is left of the liberal framework of the public sphere, which I think is still very much necessary and beneficial. For the equality and uh, and well being of, of everybody,
0: can can we do, can we sit sit on that for a second? Because yes. I I think for you this is probably going to feel like a very basic question, um, but I'm not someone who's been kind of brought not in academia. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking, uh, understanding why this liberal f- framework of the public sphere is. The, the infrastructure that, you know, could be civilization's greatest hope for freedom and, and equality. Okay. So would you mind just expounding on that a bit about what, why it's worth fighting for and maintaining?
2: Okay, that's, that's <laughs> great. That's a great question. Okay, let's start with modern society. Modern Western society, at least, is very, uh, very diverse. First of all, maybe the first, the first very obvious characteristic is that we are very diverse. There are a lot of ethnic groups, a lot of religions, a lot of, um, uh, you know, sexual orientations, a lot of people doing their own different things because we are in a very uh, late stage of modern individualism and this individualism diversifies itself. That's what it does. Mm -hmm. And if we want to make it work, to make To have all these people live in one place and get along, we need some sort of structure. Now, we can force some sort of preordained idea of what society should look like, and then we can have either, okay, we all need to be uh, proletariat, avant-garde revolutionaries that will usher in a new age of equality. That's an idea, right? That's an idea that was, that people tried to force on entire countries, and and you can see how that worked out. Or we can have, okay, we are all actually Shiite Muslims that need to keep the commandments of the Muslim faith uh, in in, in loyalty to our tradition, etc. And you can see in Iran how that works out. And what liberalism gives us is a structure, is a framework, in which we don't decide in advance of the, the trajectory of the whole population. And, and I'm talking in generalizations, but, but in generalizations it's true. We, we, we don't, we, we really uh, give out a minimum framework in which people simply can get along. So there are laws, meaning you can't, obviously you can't murder, rape, um, commit, um, you know, steal, etc. But other than that I'm not telling you how to live a good life. I'm not telling you how to how to um orchestrate how to um establish your righteousness your how to how to how to um express whatever I think is a good life is a, a decent life is a righteous life. You decide that for yourself. That's That's the pursuit of happiness thing in in the Declaration of Independence. You decide your right is to pursue your happiness however you think is right. And this, I think, is a model that works for a very diverse society, which is basically modern society, I, I would say, anywhere, certainly in the West. It works because it gives the framework, and then you yourself have to decide what you want to do with your life. You're not going to be forced. Okay, now this model has, has drawbacks, it has flaws. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying it, it, it's the only thing that works in, in such a society as we are in today. Now, and, and, and so what, what identitarian types, uh, certainly uh, some of them want to do, is, uh, is say, is reject this model saying this model is actually Western, Protestant, White, uh, Logocentric, whatever. Uh, and so it's not us. It's not catering to our authentic selves as I don't know, whatever. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to mention anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we're not we're going to reject it. Now and I just don't think that will work. I just don't think uh you can replace this model with another model that will, on one hand, um, maintain everybody's opportunity to express their own way, their own pursuit of happiness, and on the other hand, still maintain a structure that uh, is, is a viable, you know, allows for a viable society. I I, do, I don't I cannot think of an alternative. Now, of course, these identitarians think they have alternatives, right? I don't buy into that, and I, I don't think it will work. I don't think it will work for the same reason that Bolshevism didn't work, and for the same reason that uh, the theocracy in Iran doesn't work today. If you don't allow our diverse population to express itself as, to for each and every one to express themselves as they as they want, you know, it's it's not going to work. It's, it will it will Uh, You will need violence to make it work, uh, in another way of expressing
1: it. You are describing a paradox in a way. The story that you told in your wonderful book is exactly how this type of pluralism is the result of hyper-individualism, which is the result of uh, a Christian European story. and exactly how but th- but then when when this project has um whether you call it, it succeeded or reached its current state where you do have a diverse society um that of people coming from different stories and those yeah. people feel that well now you're trapping me in your Christian story how do you how do you solve it Bec- because that's that's a true
2: that's right. grievance that's right I mean you, you you're on to me when when these identitarians say look this story is white Christian western logocentric they're actually right that's true it is a product of the judeo christian tradition you know after 2000 years of process that's what you get yes it is a western culture it a cultural idea it that's true and 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 I, and I have to say, and, and first of all, as I said before, it has its drawbacks, it has its flaws, and also it has a major drawback being a specific story of, of a specific culture. That's true. The question is, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Is there another system that works? And as far as I know, I don't know of another system that works.
1: Works, works in the sense of being able to accommodate for, for this diversity, a, you mean? Right, because
2: what I'm saying is, let's say to, uh, you, know, let's, you know, give me an example of a, a group that won't be offended, I don't know. I, let's say Jews, right? <laughs> when, le, uh, when, being a Jew, of course, I can, I can say whatever I want. Ultra-Orthodox Jews saying, listen, this whole liberal, uh, you know, individualistic, self-fulfillment, emotional, expressivist, authenticist, etc. culture is Christian. What do you want from me? I, I want to live in another culture. And I'm saying to them, it's okay. You can have your own neighborhoods and your own schools and your own pursuit of happiness. It's okay. You can do it, but you cannot force your way on everybody else. So now I'm not, I'm not naive. I, I don't think it's, you know, totally, you know, Everybody can have their own way in a, in, a, in, a, in a perfect manner. Obviously not. And as I said before, we are all, in a way, Protestant. Yes, that's true. It affects us. It, it, it shapes us. And yet, that's the best we can do right now. And yes, you can say, well, well who asked the United States to make its own cultural logic the cultural logic of the whole world, or at least the whole Western world, and basically it's going to, going to it's, it's slowly, you know, uh, encompassing the whole world. Who asked them? This is cultural colonialism. And again, that's true in a way. That's, you know, I can't deny that this is actually what's happening. But, but the fact of the matter is that this is what's happening. Christianity won the day. That's it. That, we are living in a Christian world so to speak, of course, not everybody believes in Jesus, obviously. So Christianity, in the end, also, uh, uh, you know, uh, sawed the seeds of its own ruin, in a way. But we are living in a culturally Christian world. Yes, we are. And and there's nothing we can do about. I mean, unless you, of course, you know, fly off to uh, the Sahara Desert and and, you know, found the it there or whatever, basically, there's nothing you can do about it. Now, being in such a world and in such a society and in such a culture, we now have to ask what will make it work and what is the alternative? And I will say just one more thing about this. When asked what is the alternative, when identitarians, whether, uh, you know, radical LGBTs or Native Americans or... Uh, um, um, Mizrahi Jews in Israel, or, uh, or, or 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 Orthodox Jews, or whatever. When asked, not Orthodox Jews, but but usually the, the, the activists, identitarians, the the people who are in the West and are uh, are radical leftists, right? When asked, what will their new society be based on, or what values will the new society express? they usually say, well, everybody will be equal and everybody will be free. Now, you know, with all due respect, that's exactly, that's again just copying the, the liberal ethos. That's liberalism. You, you're doing it in an anti-liberal way, but you are, you are, you're, you're presuming or you're proclaiming, or you, uh, the presumption is that in the end, everybody will... We're, we're against liberalism, but in the end we'll be more liberal than the best liberal, right? We'll be more free and more equal. So, so basically these people have, have already internalized liberal values, but they just think that liberalism itself, being a Christian, Western, whatever uh, tradition, is not for them. But they're not going back to their traditional, uh, to their own tradition. An example I mentioned in my article, the article is in Hebrew, by the way, I'm sorry, but I mentioned Andrea Dvorkin. Andrea Dvorkin, a radical feminist who in the 70s, 80s, 90s, wrote a lot and, 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 and said that they should found a new society only of women. And She, she, like she, she said every, every woman should be lesbian and we should only be women by ourselves and that's it, right? So that's basically rejecting the current society, rejecting the liberal order and and saying we should do something else. But what were the characteristics of this new society? It is, of course, even more equal and even more free than our own society. So if that's all you have to offer, basically you've already bought in to the liberal ethos. You're just saying, "Ah, I have a, a better idea of how to do it. And I don't think you have a better idea of how to do it. Nobody wants to return to the patriarchal, a, a constraining religiously coercing traditions of 200 years ago.
1: I, I'm very much uh, aware of of the generosity your generosity with time, so I don't want to keep you longer. But I do want to give you a chance to uh, uh, burnish your your liberal credentials, um, and just I, um, because because you have to you have to have those um, disclaimers nowadays. Um, and I, I do want to um, give you a chance to talk about. Israel as well, because, because what, what better way to, okay. to spend your, your last like five minutes of a talk than just go on this minor topic of Israeli politics? Uh, we just came out of um, a third round elections, and we, we might be going into a fourth round. Um, what are the fault lines?
2: Good question. I mean, uh, Israel has been through a ahead of a year and a half. I mean, we've had three elections, maybe the fourth now. I mean, I don't want to go too much into that. It's basically the story of one uh, very corrupt person, uh, which is Benjamin Netanyahu, a person who is right now, at least, concerned only about their own personal future. Is standing to trial for, uh, for bribery and, and fraud and breach of trust. And, 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 that, and that's his concern. And that's why we've been through all these elections. But, but if you take a broader you know, zoom out and, and look at the Israel society, I would characterize it with two major trends or major ways of Jewish Israelis expressing their Jewish identity. The one is connected to what we call in Israel the Jewish Renaissance or the Jewish Awakening, which is Israel. Is secular Israelis re engaging, rediscovering their own tradition, and shaping their Jewish engagement in many, many different ways? All of them uh, pluralistic, as we say, liberal minded and individualistic in a way. So they may study Talmud, or they may engage in, in neo Kabbalah or neo Hasidism, or they may form. Uh, groups which they you know, celebrate the Sabbath together, Friday evening together, etc. Many different things going on, and this is an expression of, of individualistic secular Jews uh, searching, seeking for a new way of defining their Judaism. It's a new way because the old way, the old labor movement, Zionism, uh, really broke down. It's been breaking down since the 70s, and it's, it, it's Totally broke down, I would say, in the 90s, basically, and, and since then there's this search for a new new way of defining themselves. So that's and that would more characterize the left side of the political spectrum. And and so it's also more liberal-minded, democratically oriented, civic society-oriented, etc. And on the and the more and more to the right, we have another major trend in. Jewish identity shaping in Israel, which is also the result of the breakdown of, of classical Zionism, I would say, which we can call a, a, a we can we can simply call ethno nationalism. This is another way of expressing your Jewishness. It's expressing your Jewishness as uh, a bloodline, as part of the Jewish ethnos, part of the Jewish ethnic community, and and you perform that identity by being. Very patriotic, very right-wing, very loud about it, and very loud against people who are not patriotic enough in your eyes. So, so right-right wingers would would. Uh, this is a generalization, obviously, but but this ethno-national identity is takes itself as the only authentic Israeli Jewish identity, and the others have, as Netanyahu once. Whispered in the ear of a certain rabbi, the left has forgotten how to be Jewish. The others have forgotten how to be Jewish. They are, you know, they're playing around, but they're not. They're not loyal enough to the uh, blood and soil and ethnic uh, community that they should be loyal to. So, to, to these are. The, I mean, this I would say is the is the. Uh, these are the trajectories in a bird's eye view, and if you if you if you. If you look at the Israeli society through them, you can understand certain trends. Like you can understand that the whole blue and white coalition, uh, you know, the, the, the center left coalition, is this sort of Jewish identity. It's a Jewish identity that is not very traditional. It is individualistic. It is liberal. It is progressive. And it, and 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 uh, and. and When, when, when manifesting politically, it cares about the rule of law. It cares about Israeli democracy, and so it's for the two-state solution, etc., etc. And if you look to the right, again, broadly speaking, you see a different set, a different agenda, a different set of priorities. It cares about first and foremost the ethnic Jewish people, its safety, its longevity, its prosperity, and 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 that agenda that, that the value that they place on, the, on this ethnocentric view really trumps almost anything else. It trumps a Israeli rule of law, because Netanyahu, their leader, is, you know, is indicted and on trial, but it doesn't matter because he keeps us safe, because he is our protector. And it trumps. Uh, it, it it certainly trumps, uh, you know, care or 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 or, uh, you know, that being too, being uh, being worried enough about what will really happen with the Palestinian situation, right? So because the status quo is at the moment positive, you know, for for Israelis. For Israelis, that, I, that, would, that was my next two words. For Israelis, it's it's okay that we don't move towards a solution. Yeah, of course the rights of Palestinians are being trampled every day, but what can we do? And the most important thing is the viability or the, the, the you know the protection of the Jewish people. So so you can see how that works out, how that Jewish identity influences how these people understand also politics.
1: Is that Jewish identity, though? Or is that the global trend of the right, of the global right towards ethno-nationalism?
2: Right. That's, that's a great question. Uh, of course, it's part of that global trend. Yes, it's part. of. This is the Israeli version of that global trend of populism, of nationalism. Yes. But in Israel, it, it, you know, it, it has its own Jewish bent. Yeah. <laughs> And and again, this is influenced also by the breakdown, I would say, of classical Zionism, of the classical secular Zionist identity that held up, you know, nicely uh, from the 20s till the 70s and offered another way for Israelis to be secularly Jewish and and both, both patriotic and democratically minded or at least you know, caring for the Israeli democracy as a primal objective. That's gone.
1: Any, any, any last positive thoughts for, to, to end us on? It doesn't I, have to be positive. It could actually be the most pessimistic thought
2: you have right now in your head. <laughs> uh, I will say two things. I will say that the Israeli society is a vibrant, bubbling, creative society, and I love it, and I think it has enormous potential. And, and I will say a funny thing, but I, I will say, were it not for the whole Palestinian thing, <laughs> we would have made it great. But we, of course, have the Palestinian thing, uh, uh, um, and... And so
1: the Palestinian thing being an an, an occupation of the the, the occupation,
2: the occupation of the West Bank, and and, you know the siege over Gaza, and and and
1: and some some political inequality for um, for Arab Israelis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you know, that's. I mean, mean,
2: I'm giving. I'm just giving a crash course for the Israeli crisis. Oh, but the the basic thing is the occupation, of course The, the 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 most the most damaging and and you know. I would say even in a long-term stable uh, problem for Israel is, is a military occupation of a few million people. That's, that's basic. So now having that, being engaged in that, the future of Israel will hinge on Israel's ability to separate from the Palestinians uh, and, 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 you know, and, and give them their own Right of self-determination and and um, and, self, and, and, and statehood uh, and 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 what what I can say both optimistically and pessimistically is that the status quo is not viable and um, and sooner or later things will change dramatically because it's just a matter it's just a matter I think of the uh, of of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader, Abu Mazen, as we call him in Israel, um, um, you know, passing on. And, and I, I wish him a long and um, peaceful life, but he is not a young person, not a young man. And, 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 and sooner or later, there will erupt a uh, succession struggle, and the, and that's when you can expect major things to change, because Israel will either have to uh, to, to to interrupt that to to make it's military and and anyway things will change so the status quo even though the right thinks it's uh, totally okay and maybe and and, and viable etc it's not and it will change and, and and this is both pessimistic and optimistic meaning that it can change for the worst but it also can be a catalyst for a final you know solution uh, in a good way I think. That's basically it, uh, uh, you know. Uh, but this is really, this is really a subject for a whole, uh, you know, a whole hour of talk. So
1: <laughs> I see that as the dessert conversation. Just a little bit, <laughs> a little bit about. The coming doom of the Israeli status quo. <laughs> Tolo, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And, and to say it again, it's it's always such a pleasure to read your 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 thank commentary. You. And and thank your you. book was wonderful. And I and I can't wait for it to to come out um,
0: and then be translated into English.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, if, if any of our listeners knows of, uh, you know, <laughs> wants to fund the translation. <laughs> <Yes>. uh,
1: <laughs> thank you. Have a great night, Tomer.
2: Great. You too. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Uh, check out our blog on uncertain.substack.com and you can follow Tomer at Tomer Persico on Twitter. Stay safe.